0: Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land and the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? and all the people stand around you from morning till evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, and of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart. He went away to his own country. Let's ask God's blessing upon His Word. Father in heaven, we have just heard Your voice from heaven. That great voice that created the world has spoken again in Your Word. And we pray that Your Spirit would now use it, that we might see Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know the phrase, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, actually, it's funny. As science kind of advances again, science illustration. As neuroscience actually is becoming a thing and they're beginning to study the human brain, you know there's actually a reason for that? There's a reason why you can't teach old dogs new tricks. In fact, actually, I'm going to say it a bit more delicately. It's it's why it gets harder to learn the older you get. And there's a reason for it. It's because when humans are born, God has made their brain in such a way that there are no, there's no road system in their mind. If you need to get from here to here, there's no good way to get from there to there. So you have to create a new path. That's why babies come out and they're all wide-eyed and they learn everything and then they immediately sleep. They're always exhausted because their brain is writing a new road system inside. But what they're finding out now is that the road system inside our brains peaks for its creation a lot earlier than we might like to admit as I turn 40. And in fact, actually, I guess maybe the kinder way to say it is that God has made it so that as we age, we get really efficient. Our brain drives the way that it knows. Let's say you're here and you need to get here. An aging brain will take the road that it knows instead of making a new one. You ever tried to learn an instrument in your 40s or 50s or 60s? It's very difficult. Why? Because a brain in its 40s, 50s, or 60s, or 70s, or 80s, doesn't want to make a new road. It will drive the way it knows. For those of you that have been in Fort Mill for a a while, how many of you, when they opened the bypass, were like, nah, I'll stay through downtown Fort Mill. (laughs) I heard the laughs. I was hoping I knew somebody would do it. It's part of how our, our bodies operate in a fallen world that as we age, we don't like to do new things because our brains are not equipped to handle it as well. It's interesting, it's part of your biology. Your brain doesn't make new pathways as you age. And when it does, it wants to make them as short as possible, even if it means taking the long way to get there. It's also part of why kind of more anecdotally it's one of those things that you just don't see very often anymore certainly in the American churches you statistically humanly by every kind of metric we have you do not see aging folks get converted. Every kind of human you know way to metric to tabulate to understand every survey ever kind of given it says more or less if you're not a Christian by the age of 25 or 26 you never will be. It just doesn't happen. It's not that common. Okay, maybe a little older once you have kids and bring them back to church. But if you hit 40 or 50, certainly if you hit 60 or 70. It's part of why we find so much joy in folks in those age brackets being converted here in the last handful of years. Why we delight. Because the passage we come to here in Exodus 18, I've been setting you up for it, is actually the exact opposite of how the biology is designed to work. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, absolutely God does. Exodus chapter 18 tells the story of what we might lovingly say, a very old dog learning a very new trick. As we've come this far in Exodus, we've seen God take his people out of the land of Egypt, and those people botch it time and time and time and time again. God does miracles, they complain. God does miracles, they complain. God does miracles, they complain. That's pretty much the pattern of the story. They've complained about water, they've complained about food, they just complain. They've complained about Moses until we get to chapter 18. Chapter 18 is significant because it has the reintroduction of a character not from Israel. Thus far in the story, everyone not of Israel by and large, except for this fella, is dead. All of Egypt, dead. All of the Amalekites, dead. If you're not Israel, you're not much. But in chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, comes back. It's, uh, you remember the story. It was from early on. Uh, Moses met. Uh, he fled Egypt when he was a murderer. Uh, met uh, the priest of Midian, marries a daughter, stays with him for more or less 40 years, and then goes down to Egypt at God's command. Jethro is a priest. And has a daughter of age. To kind of give you an idea again, remembering Moses was 80 when he went into Egypt to lead them out. Which means Jethro is a touch less young than that, maybe. 100? 110? 120? It's maybe not what we would call a young fella anymore, not a young buck. And here you have this man who's been a priest of a pagan religion for quite likely a century. Hear that idea again. A man who has been a pagan priest for quite likely a century shows up. Yeah, well. (laughs) I mean, if we're reading the book of Exodus and kind of paying attention, you'd have a pretty good idea this dude's dead by the end of the chapter. I mean, everybody else that supposed God who's been on the other side, they're all dead. This guy's going to be next, right? He's a pagan priest. There's no chance it goes well for him, does it? Well, I already read it, so I kind of spoiled it. You know it does. Jethro and Moses have most likely arranged to uh, meet back in Sinai at Horeb. Uh, and uh, Jethro, as I can imagine, any. Uh, father-in-law would do transports his daughter and his grandkids to make sure they get there safely, right, you know all father-in-laws do this, make sure their daughters are provided for safely as they travel back home, here he goes, takes his daughter, takes his grandchildren maybe great-grandchildren by this point, maybe great-great-great-grandchildren we don't know and they arrive, send a messenger out, give them fair warning And you get to be reminded that God's word certainly speaks to all of life and every culture, but it's not written in the culture that we currently live in. Verse eight or so, uh, I'm sorry, seven. I turned my page too early. Jethro shows up with the caravan. Moses comes out and greet him. And again, if this were in uh, Fort Mill or Rock Hill in 2019, you could have this really poignant moment of the 40-year-old kids running up to Moses and jumping in his arms, right? <laughs> it's amazing how we forget how how not young he is. It's like in my mental picture, he's always so young and it's young kids, they're not. But instead, it's an ancient Near Eastern culture and this uh, aged, revered pagan priest shows up And Moses, in this, doesn't even really acknowledge his wife and his children, at least not the way that we would see. He addresses the man who is most respected, most revered, he's most honored. He bows before his father-in-law, greets him with a a kiss and a blessing, and then the fellows go into the tent to have fellow conversation. I guess this might have looked like, what, Seventy years ago, cigars and brandy, while the guys sit in the uh, smoking room in the front. I guess I don't know, uh, but they go in and they begin to have serious conversation. Verse eight, Moses recounts everything that's happened between here and there. I mean, and the stories would have been absolutely amazing to think through. You think about it from Jethro's perspective, all of the traders that had took all of their goods down to Egypt and then got there when we're like egypt's dying, like their whole army's just dead, like that 's not where we want to go trade anymore. We need to go you know we need to go east or we need to go north you don 't want to go to Egypt anymore. that nation 's dying we don 't know what happened. The story is the ocean ate them i mean i don 't know what happened i don't know the ocean doesn 't normally eat other things, but it ate egypt so let 's figure out what 's going on. The stories that would have been coming out I mean, can you imagine um, yeah, so the firstborn of the entire nation just dropped dead one night. Everybody's kind of spooked. Nobody really wants to stay in Egypt anymore. It's time to go. And Jethro would be thinking, like, what is Moses doing? What kind of trip did he make to Egypt? What, what kind of business is he on? What kind of God does he serve? Eight, Moses recounts the whole story. What the Lord had done to Pharaoh... What the Lord had done to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all of the hardship that had come along the way and how the Lord had delivered them. I love how the way Moses even tells this now, he's highlighting, this is not Moses' story. This is not kind of one of those testimony times, and I'm I'm not saying any of you have ever done this, I know you have. Where uh, the way you tell your testimony, it's all of the before Christ years are so interesting. Like that was the highlight of your life. And then the Lord, you know, converts you and then it gets boring. Moses tells the story in such a way that it's almost like Moses isn't even there. Look, look at what God did. Look at what God did. Let's talk about what the Lord has done. Let's talk about Yahweh. Let's talk about how he has worked. And again, if you hadn't read the whole passage to you already, and if you didn't know the story, you would think okay, big question. This is the point that Israel has been brought to. Israel has been able to see the mighty works of God over and over and over and over and over again. And every single time, Israel has failed. They've grumbled, they've complained. They've wanted to stone Moses. I mean, that's a bit inconvenient, I guess. They've rejected God. And here you have a pagan priest who, like I said, quite likely, I'm just guessing here, quite likely has been a pagan priest for more than a hundred years. What's he going to do? I mean, Israel has done the wrong thing over and over and over and over and over again. Now we have the pagan priest. What's he going to do? I mean, kind of putting this in, in kind of the modern story, it would be the equivalent of having a man who was a Muslim imam for a century coming and listening to the stories of Jesus. Or Buddhist monk for a century I mean realistically if you're reading the story you know how that ends right he's like oh well, that's nice and all but my God's the real God and then God kills him and that's how the story ends and it's like well Jethro had a good run not really I mean certainly if Israel can't respond correctly the pagan priest has no chance I'm going to suggest what we see in the rest of the chapter. This is really where the sermon starts. We see God work salvation in a beautiful way. I'll say it a bit more differently. Exodus 18 verses 9 and following is a beautiful picture of salvation. That's what salvation is supposed to be. Jethro hears the stories of what God has done in verse 9. I mean, old dog, new tricks, unexpected, the mystery, the, the, the surprise, not even ending, the surprise middle that no one would have ever guessed. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done in Israel. What does he do? It's a confession of faith. I mean, Jethro, this pagan priest, hears the works of the Lord and he immediately begins to rejoice and specifically pay attention. You remember in your English right there, it has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's all capitalized there. That's to clue in he's not using the generic God. Right? This is what happens in the media today, what happens in our culture where people are like, oh, it was a God thing. And they have no idea which God they're talking about. Jethro here is not saying generic, God was at work. He says, let's rejoice and delight that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of what will become the Bible, the triune God, which he doesn't know that part yet, he is at work. Not generic God the God. Again, putting this in the vernacular, this would be kind of the comment. It would be the Muslim imam saying, let's praise the Lord God named Jesus and not Allah. This is a statement of a confession of faith, a statement of conviction that this God, the God of the Bible, is the only God. He's the right God. He's the true God. And he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It's a statement that God is the one who provides salvation. Jesus is the only solution for sin He's the only way to heaven. That would be the way to say it today. It begins with confession of faith. Friends, I I might suggest, were we living in this era, this sentence would be staggering to hear. Just, I mean, think about about how long Moses had probably prayed for the salvation of his (coughs) father-in-law. For more than four decades, he had lived with this man, knowing that he didn't know the God of the Bible. Think about how many tears might have been poured out, how much sorrow might have existed in the family that he's married to the daughter of a pagan, a pagan man. The Lord does teach an old saint new tricks. Begins with this great confession of faith, but doesn't stop with that. This is, again, maybe something to be reminded in our postmodern era that it's not simply enough to say that we're a Christian. It's not simply enough to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. Great. I'm glad you do. Let's see what that means for you. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Again, covenant name of God. Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. He is the one who's delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh. He is the one who has delivered the people from under the... Again, he's just ringing on with these great confessions here. Verse 11. Now I know that the Lord, the covenant Lord, is greater than all gods, including the one that I've been ministering in his name for the last century. He's a dud. Your God's the good one. And I know this because your Lord defeated everybody that dealt arrogantly with his people. Again, remembering everyone who's interacted with him is dead. That is a good track record for might. Everyone who wants to go against Israel, have a go. That's the end of your country. You're done. This amazing uh, time of worship that flows out of him, even to the point, verse 12, you see Jethro, he gets the other guys with him and he starts offering sacrifices to God. He begins to worship him. And again, it's not the most informed worship you have to know. He just heard the story of what God did. It's like, well, it's time to worship him, let's go to church. Let's have offerings, let's have sacrifices, let's get all the elders, let's get, every, let's get everybody together and let's worship God. That's like those, you hear this periodically where folks are like, well, I love Jesus, but I, I just hate going to church to worship. Okay, I, I can recognize that there are portions of God's church that maybe are not quite as lovely as others. I can get that. And I can get that there are uh, sermons that are not quite as clear as others. We all know I've preached those. (laughs) I can also acknowledge that there are some tunes that are quite ugly. Again, we know I've picked those. But it's not about us having our needs met. It's about bringing ourselves as living sacrifices to the triune God of the universe to say, I love you, God. You own my life. You've redeemed me from the pit. And I'm going to delight in you. Even if I don't delight in this specific tune. Because there's a dud that Michael picked again. It's the second time this month. They have worship together. They have church together. They all get together and that's great. Aaron and Moses, the elders, they have sacrifices. As part of those sacrifices they probably had a feast. So all the meat that was sacrificed to God, you had some of it that was burnt, some of it that was cooked. And then they had a big old fellowship meal together. The church got to hang out together. Oh man, it's special. And again, we don't know if Jethro was converted this day or if he had been previously converted, but certainly this is a landmark kind of moment and. Transition in his life, and I love the next thing that happens. They effectively bring him to the Disciplinary Committee of Presbytery for an entire day. I'm like, man, if if we had a situation like that, you know, let's say we had a, a a Buddhist priest come in who'd been a Buddhist priest for 70 years and get amazingly converted one Sunday. I'm fairly certain on Monday I would not take him to the disciplinary committee of the PCA. I don't know about you, but I'm fairly certain I wouldn't take him to Presbytery on Monday. But yet, that's where it goes. <laughs> Fair enough. Moses begins Uh, conducting court and again you think about we're not talking about a nation of Israel that's like you know 50 or 100 or 200 people we're talking a nation of Israel that's like a million people that does not have a police force the way that we know that does not have a functioning government the way that we know uh, that doesn't really have an army the way that we know God kills everybody and they just had an army raise up in the previous chapter with no real weapons so when they do have to have you know problems resolved they don't have the mechanism to do so yet And instead, they bring their problems to Moses, and Moses sorts it out, right? Your cow stomped on his lamb, pay him money, or whatever it is. And you get the impression that, one, it's such a large nation, that they have lots of problems. And the problems, some of them are quite large and some of them are quite small. And the result is a scenario where Moses goes and sits down in some place where he's trying to conduct court. He's exhausted. And the people just come and crowd around him in a circle, yelling to get his attention. And then whichever one he resolves, and it just takes all day. All day. And I love what happens following. I think there's two kind of key elements that are important to understand in terms of this what Christianity, what conversion, what holiness looks like. Jethro does not wait to put his gifts to use. Dude's a pagan priest for a century. Has this amazing transformation by God and immediately begins serving in the body in some fashion. Now, granted, he's probably the most respected and revered man in the entire country. So it's maybe not a perfect one-to-one kind of application that random, you know, fella gets converted. Let's put him in terms of leadership. Uh, you know, he's one of the great men of a nation, kind of thing. It would um, maybe, maybe like a great politician, but I'm not sure we would call them the great men or women of our country. He makes a recommendation look, the Lord's given me wisdom. He's been a, a priest and his priesthood service would have been very involved. It would have been more than just kind of voodoo and things like that. It would have been a leadership and conflict resolution in some sense in his own right. And he says, look, Moses, what you're doing is a terrible idea. It's wearisome for you. You're going to burn out. And it's wearisome for the people. They're going to burn out on you. Because they're going to spend so much time waiting to get justice, they're either going to take it into their own hands or they're eventually going to turn on you. It's wearisome to both sides. We've got to have a better solution. So here's what you're going to do. I'm going to give you good counsel and you're going to listen. You're going to create a judicial system. That's in essence what Jethro argues for is a judicial system. Men over different bodies of, uh, you know, sizes of of bodies and building up into basically like an appellate court is really what it is. With the Supreme Court going all the way to Moses himself. But I love how he gives kind of in essence two reasons for this. One, it uses the gifts of the rest of the body. It's intriguing how he gets to the end of this. Let the people do this. They're They're able to handle it. They've been equipped to do it. Let them handle their own issues. Jethro has an incredibly sophisticated understanding of the body of the church for having had this kind of radical moment in the first half of the chapter. Look, God equips his saints. Let them work. Secondly, Moses, you don't need to be doing that because you need to be inquiring of the Lord. These same ideas are going to show up in the New Testament. Uh, Paul's going to make this argument in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about how uh, it's not good that you sue each other. It's bad that you sue each other. Well, you, you may not remember this part. of. He makes a very sophisticated argument where he says, look, why do you take it to the court system? It's filled with pagans and they don't even know God. Even the most uneducated and simple-minded of you have Christ, and you're infinitely more equipped than the most educated of the pagans. Solve it in-house. You don't need them. You're the church, for Pete's sake. You have the Holy Spirit residing within you. You have the Word of God. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why do you need the pagans again? You don't. Handle it in-house very high view of the church and again we run into problems with this in America all the time don't we as a preacher I get to hear this more often than I would like when I talk with folks where they're like well I love Jesus but I just hate the church that's kind of problematic because that's kind of who he died for it's kind of problematic because he said himself that he loves her it's kind of problematic because he said the church would win the church would be victorious not perfectly yet And she certainly has some beauty spots that need to be corrected. But the Lord loves the church. Be a part of the church. The Lord is equipping you to minister on top of this. I would say it's the primary ministry of this body, it's your ministry. It goes kind of hand-in-hand with his second point with Moses Here is Look, Moses, your job is not to be sitting and judge all of the time. You're not the one supposed to be solving $25 cattle problems. I mean, livestock are important, but you don't need to be the one solving that. You need to be spending your efforts elsewhere. It's going to be the same argument that's brought up for the creation of the diaconate. Look, elders, your job needs to be spent in certain things. You need to be in specifically the Word and in prayer. That's what your job is supposed to be. Let the deacons take care of setting up tables. That's specifically the illustration given. Let them handle that stuff so that you can handle this stuff. And I would say for all of you, be reminded, look, my job description is written in a very kind of special way. I preach and teach a lot. I happen to really enjoy that. But I love to preach and teach, I do it a lot. But I am human and I am finite. And if I'm going to preach and teach a lot, it means there's a lot of things that I need y'all to do. We talk about this in officer training. I can only do really what I do because I'm blessed with amazing elders and amazing deacons. In fact, actually, I think I've talked to you two different conversations this week, complimenting both bodies behind their back. We have great elders and we have great deacons. They have to do their work in order for me to be able to do mine. To preach and teach the way that I do, the quantity that I do, with the effort that I do, they have to do their labor. But likewise, for this church to grow and to be blessed and to be rich and to be full the way that we desire it to be, you have to work. Because your work, I would say, in many ways, far more important than mine. I mean, think about the way that you can pray, that I can't I'm one man. There are a hundred people. Think about the, the, the sheer just amount of prayer, quantity-wise, much less quality-wise the prayers that you can offer, the the range of things that you can pray for, the people that you can pray for by name, much less the ministries of encouragement and meals being cooked and phone calls being made and visits being made and encouragements and all of those things, the ministry of the church. Jethro's argument is amazing. Look, if you want Israel to be healthy, Moses, you can't be the guy. They have to be. It is intriguing as we see this kind of transitioning into the New Testament church, it it follows the same pattern. Look, if we want the church to be healthy, it can't be Paul. It can't be Timothy. It can't be Silas or Barnabas or Peter or James or John or any of the others. Go appoint elders, go appoint deacons. Let the body be the one who serves. I'll be honest with you, when I started studying this chapter, I read the whole thing kind of front to back, and I was like, oh my goodness, how on earth, how on earth are you supposed to preach this entire chapter in one go? And you started thinking about it, realizing, man, what? It is a sophisticated presentation of God redeeming a man and then that redemption transforming a community a portion of God's church being richly, richly blessed through the salvation that God accomplishes. And I would make just very briefly a couple of applications in light of this. One, first and foremost, be reminded the Lord is in the business of teaching old dogs new tricks. Put differently and maybe a bit less crassly, Or maybe less offensively, depending on where your age is. The Lord is in the business of doing miracles that we would never guess. If he I mean, Ezekiel talks about pulling out that heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Talks about it in language that we would never really be able to conceive of, that God works more powerfully than we would expect more powerfully than we would guess, more powerfully than sometimes even we would hope. And in terms of this great application, I would challenge us. I think some of us, sadly, I think we, we know this here, but we sometimes kind of forget this here, don't we? Where we kind of, I mean, we don't really say it, but we kind of just emotionally kind of think there's, there are just some people that are just past it. Like they had their shot and they just kind of missed it and God's just not going to work there. Maybe we grieve in private because we think that door is shut. That ship has sailed or maybe in fact actually I would say probably far more frequently we just get apathetic. Or we just don't think that you know the Lord is in the business of saving souls and changing people. That's what he does. He sent his son to the cross that all of this would be different. Lord is in the business of saving souls and changing people. (coughs) Secondly, and just very briefly, just to be reminded in uh, in terms of application that uh, salvation is a heart thing, but it always manifests through a hand thing. Salvation is a heart thing, but it it always shows through a hand thing. Uh, James would say it differently and far more elegantly where he says... Uh, Faith without works is dead. True salvation is always going to manifest itself. And in that sense, be quick to embrace utilizing your faith, confessing, worshiping, serving, being a part of the body. Again, and I'll say this, just this is not humility. This is just sheer pragmatism. I have very limited amount of time and I am a tired man. But there's way more of y'all to do all of that, to make all of that confession of faith, to sing all of the hymns, to teach the children, to serve one another, to build each other up, and please, most importantly, to pray. It was said yesterday, just an offhand line at Presbytery it's a very, very good line. Be reminded that prayer is not preparation for the ministry of the church, it is the ministry of the church. This preaching is not the ultimate ministry the prayer is that. It's not the preparation for me to preach. And then lastly, and very quickly in terms of application, please be sure to cultivate a very high view of the bride of Christ, the church. She's not perfect yet. But she is lovely. Oh my, she is lovely. You may not get to see all of that. You may not know all of that yet, and you may be kind of, again, fairly new to that. Maybe you've been burned in the past. I would say intentionally aim to cultivate, practice, teach your children a high view of the church. For the Lord loves his saints, and he uses us to minister to one another so that we together might see Jesus we together might be built up in his kingdom. May it be that this tiny portion of his kingdom, this tiny portion of his church, would go forth cultivating that type of faith we see here. God illustrating, teaching, and instructing in Exodus 18. Father in heaven, we bless your name. You are so kind. Thank you for forgiving us in Jesus. Thank you for redeeming us from the grave. Thank you that we have victory over death and hell and sin forever. Bless us for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.